We got two things in news in the news today. It's been there for a while. One is Israel. We've already said a word about that. The other is abortion. And I'd like to speak a little bit this morning about the way the Bible deals with that and what God thinks about it so that we could use biblical information to help form our attitude about it. Let's just see what God says. I've got a list of scriptures here. They're about 12 or 15. No need to turn there. If you want to turn to Jeremiah chapter 1, we'll be there in a bit. But it's one that's important, and I think you need to recognize what it is. Jeremiah chapter 1. But he says in John chapter 18 and verse 37, Jesus was standing in Pilate's hall being tried by Pilate the night before he was killed the next day on the cross. And Pilate asked him, are you a king? And Jesus said, who told you that? Or did you think of it yourself? But he says to explain it, and he explained it. Jesus said, to this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world to be able to bear witness to the truth. And the people of truth hear my voice. That's what he said. That's what Jesus said. So Pilate then asked Jesus, what is truth? And Jesus didn't answer him at that point. But later on, Jesus made this statement. In John 17, 17, he says, Father, thy word is truth. So let me say this. All over God's word, he testifies that the words of the scriptures are true that they are true from one end to the other. I myself believe Jesus wrote the whole Bible. The whole Bible in my mind is truth. Anything you can read there and understand what they meant when they said it, you're understanding truth and you can accept that as truth. Now, all the truths of life are not in the Bible. I've heard those argue that they are, but I don't believe they are. But the question I ask, when I am asked for the truth, I go to the Word. And I quote the Word. And it's not my opinion. And it's not another man's opinion. It's the opinion of Scripture. That, to me, is truth. Now, if you hear a truth somewhere else, the question I ask is, how do you verify it? My mind is trained by me and choices that I made in my life to where if I hear it coming out of the Bible and it's explained correctly, then I believe it as truth. 
Anything else I might be a little bit speculative about. But the fact is we make a lot of decisions every day about what we believe and what we don't believe as to whether or not it's true. And we hear a lot that's not true. You know that. But in talking about this particular truth, the truth of what God says about his scripture in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28, God told Adam and Eve after he created them, you go out into the world and multiply. That was his commandment to them. And fill the earth, he said. Psalms 139 and verse 13, David said, I was wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, Lord. God showed us in the 139th Psalm how he put himself in the equation by telling us how each one of us, what we were talking about a while ago, David, about the mother and the father coming together, their DNAs come together, and he takes the DNA from a man and a woman and creates a human being with it. Interesting words in there when you take them all apart, but that word made is a word, a Hebrew word, that says something was made out of something else that already existed. That's what God had to do. God can't make you any way he wants you to be. He's got to take what your mother has and your father has and put them together, and then he's got some variation within that. But he can't make you any kind of way. But the point is, he makes us. He creates us. He, our plans are written down in a book, it says somewhere. So God is in the process of creating human beings. And he's in the middle of every single birth that ever was. In Genesis chapter 29 and verse 31, it says, The Lord opened Leah's womb. Now you understand that. In other words, Leah got pregnant because God opened her womb. In Genesis chapter 30 and verse 22, it said God opened Rachel's womb. Please understand, I believe, and I think it's fair to say, that there is nobody that will get pregnant unless God opens their womb. Every place in the Word, he says that. It says in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 5, And the Lord had shut up Hannah's womb. He had her womb closed. She couldn't get pregnant. 
But she's the one you know that had Samuel. She prayed, and God gave her a son. In 2 Samuel, chapter 6, and verse 23, there's a really interesting story in there. I'd recommend it to anybody. David was king of Israel. He had been given as his first wife the daughter of Saul. Her name was Michael. Now you've got to understand, it, thing, a lot of things hadn't changed. I mean, here's a girl that was raised in the king's palace. She had everything. You know she had to be a touch spoiled. You know she did. Because she never wanted anything she didn't have. The Palestinians, then called the Philistines in the Bible, had come in and stolen the ark of God from the temple of Jerusalem. The ark of God is that chest that had the tables of the Ten Commandments in it. It had some showbread and some other articles that were very special to the Jewish religion. They came and stole that and took it away from the country. The Jews finally realized where it was, made efforts and got it back in their possession but they didn't have it back to Jerusalem to put in the temple yet. But they were in the process of moving it, and they weren't moving it like God said move it, and it put it on the ox cart, and it was shaking, and a fellow reached up to keep it from falling off the cart, and God struck him dead just that, quite, that quick. He was a good man, one of David's right-hand men. And David got mad about it. He was just trying to help us out, Lord. Why in the world would you kill him? And God said, I gave you instructions about how that thing's supposed to be moved. And they're just as good today as they were then. So David went and hunted up a priest and found out how they were supposed to move it. It had four rings, one on each corner. And the priest cut poles and stuck them through the ring. And two priests put the poles on their shoulders and brought the ark back to Jerusalem. As it was coming into town. Now, I mean, you can take some of this stuff. It's, it's just like it is now. People don't change that much. David was a music man. He was also a man of war. But, I mean, he played the harp. He... he he, 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 he could soothe people's minds and everything with his music. And when they announced that the ark of God was coming into Jerusalem, the people started running out on the sides of the street like a parade. And David got so excited, and because, you know, anybody that fools with music is going to dance a little bit, you know. Well, he got to dancing in the street out there, he was so happy that the ark was coming back to Jerusalem. And Michael, la-di-da, raised in the king's palace, had a problem because he was dancing in front of the young girls of the kingdom in his underwear out there. 
And she had something to say about it. And she criticized the king of Israel, her husband, David. It's getting a little warm in here. And in 2 Samuel, chapter 6 and verse 23, it says, Therefore, Michael had no child until her death. So we see something else about getting pregnant. People can be punished by God by keeping them from becoming pregnant. Every time I think about folks that we hear about nowadays that are having trouble having children, a young couple marries or something and all, and if they start having problems, they run to a fertility doctor. And then, they, you know, some of them have six or seven, I understand, I don't know. But the first question is asked, God, am I crossways with you some kind of way? Have I done something you don't approve of? Because God took the daughter of Saul and the wife of David and fixed it where she never had any children. And in those days, about the only status that a woman had was to have children for her husband. So we see then that in punishment, there are some people that can't have children. Now there's another story It comes from Genesis chapter 20 and verse 18. When God told Abram to get out of his country around his kinfolks, people that knew him, and go to a place he'd show him, Abraham had a problem. Sarah, his wife, was one of the best looking women in the whole country. And it was obvious to everybody that she was. It was something that was done in that day. Sarah and Abraham had the same father, but not the same mother. And so he married his half-sister. Now here's the thing. Truthfully, Sarah was Abraham's wife, because they were married, and she was also Abraham's sister. And here again, one of the best looking women in the country. So Abraham, going to strange country, got together with Sarah and told her, you tell everybody you're my sister. Don't tell them you're my wife. He was afraid that somebody might kill him to take his wife away from him. And he's traveling among people that he didn't know. So in a place where he was, there was a king, Abimelech, who happened to notice that Abraham had a beautiful wife. But he was told that she was his sister. So he took her into his harem and was going to make her his wife. Now, there's something else that I've always wondered about. 
This story is referred to in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 5 when it talks about a wife can change her husband spiritually without saying a word. And it said that the women of the old days trusted God so much that they did everything their husband would tell them to do and they used Sarah as an example for the things that she did that Abraham told her to do to the extent that she quietly stayed in this king's harem and made folks believe she was Abraham's sister because he was chicken and she stayed there long enough that the women in his harem quit having children. And Abimelech, like those guys in those days, thought there was some kind of a problem, got to be a problem. I've done something I'm not supposed to do or my wives would be getting pregnant. Then he found out that he had Abraham's wife in his harem. It embarrassed him so badly that he had made that big a mistake that he gave Abraham all kind of mule loads of gold and silver, all kind of expensive stuff, and hustled him out of the country before everybody found out what he had done. So God kept Abimelech's wives from getting pregnant because Abimelech was living in sin because he had another man's wife in his hair. So that's another aspect of this whole thing about biblical pregnancy. But the thing I think that we can understand from these five or six scriptures I just mentioned is that God chooses to control who gets pregnant, who doesn't get pregnant, and when they get pregnant. That is very much evident in a study of the whole scripture. So it's God's game. That's part of his game. That's what he does. People don't understand this. But that's what God does. And he looks at things from that perspective. Because see, the, the, the thing that we got going on right now that's six, 7,000 years old is the Arabs are fighting the Jews because Sarah couldn't wait until she had her pregnancy. She had to send her maid into Abraham. Now there's another part of this story. It's something called fornication. Fornication is sexual sin among the unmarried. And in Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 21, it says that fornication is punishable in Moses' law by death. If a man found that his wife had been with a man before he married her, he had every legal right to put her to death. 
That's the problem that Jesus had, remember? The angel came and told Mary, you're carrying a child, but it's there because of the Holy Spirit. And you remember Joseph, it says, all these Christmas stories you read in Scripture, Joseph was trying to figure out he was a, a, a fair man and he didn't want to embarrass his new wife by putting her to death and shaming her in front of all the neighbors until the angel came to him and said, look, 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 this is not what you think it is. She's going to have a child by the Holy Spirit. And so he carried her to Egypt to keep the neighbors from finding out. The word fornication is used in the Bible 37 times. 20 times it's in the New Testament. In Jesus' day, everywhere the church was being established as the apostles were going out in the book of Acts and creating new churches, if you ever read it, you'll see in there that every place that they left after they started a new church, one of the last things they told the people that new Christians in that church abstained from fornication. Twenty times it's used that way in the book of Acts. So it must have been a problem in that day. But when you became a Christian, God didn't approve of it, and they were reminding the people not to be, to, to abstain from the sin of fornication. So we know that by the time of Jesus, unlike Moses' law back in Canaan in the Promised Land, because they were killed back then, and like the woman who was caught in adultery, the penalty for that was killing. She was brought to Jesus. Most of us remember that story. But by the time Jesus was walking the streets of Jerusalem, apparently the people in the world were involved in the sin of fornication because almost every single time new churches, new people are born again, new, people, new churches are established, and Christians are left, they're warned, abstain from the sin of fornication. Now there's another issue in this biblical issue about this thing of abortion, in my mind. It comes from Exodus chapter 20 and verse, 20, uh, verse 13 when it says, Thou shalt not kill. Now that word translated kill is to intentionally slay somebody. It's murder. That's what it means. It doesn't mean step on a frog and kill him or, 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 or shoot a dog. It means killing somebody intentionally. Now we get to modern day. And here's the part that affects us, I think, with this background of exactly what's going on as far as God is concerned and what he established and you have to know, I mention it nearly every Sunday, we don't live now like God plans for us to live in the Bible. We just don't, we don't do that away. We change everything, and we water most of it down. 
Since January 1973, January of this year was the 50th anniversary of Roe versus Wade. The court trial that established the legality of abortion. Since that trial, the experts say that 64 million babies have been killed in 50 years. 64 million. Okay. We talked about thou shalt not kill. We talked about God's involvement with pregnancies. I'd like to show you now why I think it's so personal with God. And as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, it ought to be important to us. Number one, it's rebellion against God because He forbade it. He forbade those things that causes unwanted pregnancies. So that's one thing. And we spit in God's face about a lot of things, folks. That's not nice to say, but we do it. And we don't even realize how serious it is. We tell him he's dumb every day and we're smart. Because we make our own decisions about things. The second reason that I think it's so important with God is in Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 4. Then the word of God, word of the Lord, came unto me, Jeremiah said, and he said, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. I cleaned thee up. And I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Now hear what that says. God is telling Jeremiah, Jeremiah's a young, young guy. He's a young teenager. And God told him, Before, while you were yet in your mother's womb, I knew you. Yes, he knew him. Because it says in 139 Psalms, he created every part of him. He designed him. And before you came out of the womb, I sanctified thee and ordained thee. I put my hand on you and made you a preacher for me, a prophet. Then said I, O Lord God, behold, I can't speak for I'm a child. I don't have sense enough to even talk to you, Lord, about this, what you're telling me. But the Lord said unto me, verse 7, Say not, I'm a child. Scolded him. Don't say that, he said. For thou shalt go to all that I shall send thee, and whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak.
For the most part, I can't talk to other preachers about this because they won't talk about it. This right here is God telling a man he called to preach, you better not say one word that I don't tell you to say. You don't change what I tell you. You preach just exactly what I tell you to preach. That has had a way of slipping too. So we see from that then that if God called Jeremiah from the womb to preach, he must call some preachers from the womb. I personally believe he calls people for all kinds of jobs from the womb. Wonder what this world would be like now, today, 50 days later, if those 64 million people who was killed in the womb before they were born in the world, wonder what kind of an impact they would have had on this place. And the fact that God calls them to be preachers from the womb and whatever. He calls them to do other things from the womb. Wonder what it changed as far as the prosperity and the prophecy of the world is concerned. Number three, and this is the last one, there are only three things that I had, the thing that God makes it special and personal with him is that people who are involved in this sin are adopting the personal sin of Satan himself. This is his character. And whether you remember it or not, Satan was Lucifer, the most beautiful and the smartest angel that was. He was God's right-hand man. You remember, Becky, what your Vietnam friend used to say about him. There was a time when he was the smartest and most powerful man next to God in the whole world. But Lucifer, Satan, sinned. And his sin was this. He said, I will be like the Most High God. Now essentially what he was saying there is in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3, it talks about the authority that's on the earth and the only person who is not under the authority of anybody else is God, Jehovah, God himself. He's the only one that can do everything he wants to do anytime he wants to do it without having to ask anybody. And that's what Satan wanted. I want to be like God. I don't want to have to ask anybody what I do. I want to make my decisions for my life, for me, and what I think needs to be done. And I don't want to have to depend on anybody to tell me what to do. You remember 6th chapter of Proverbs, verse 16 
There are six things that God hates. Yeah, there are seven that are abomination to him. And the first thing on God's hate list is a proud look. I personally believe that arrogance and pride is the one thing that without even hardly noticing can destroy the ministry of a pastor. Because God quits talking to him. And when God quits talking to a man because he's got such a big ego and so arrogant, then the people who have to listen to him suffer because they're not hearing what God wants them to hear. I will make my own decisions for my own life. Now when God heard Satan say this, what did Jesus say later? Oh, I was up there when Satan left heaven. I saw him leave heaven like a bolt of lightning. I've told you, there's only one thing for sure I know about heaven. And that's if you don't do what God likes, you're not going to be there long. Because everybody that was ever there that did anything that God didn't like, they came out of there like a bolt of light. So all we have to do, people, I preach it every Sunday, all we have to do is say, Lord, I know you're there. I am a one of your children. I have been born again. Jesus is my Savior but I'm going to make up my own mind today about everything I do. I'm not going to consult you about anything. I'm not going to wait to do about anything. I'm going to make up my mind and I'm going to do it. That is the sin of Satan. I will live my life like I want to live my life and if I happen to get pregnant I'll take care of it with abortion. That essentially is a decision that people make. They call it now exercising women's rights. Women and men, I'm not leaving them out, think they have the right to take what God has done and turn it around and say, Lord, that was a stupid move. Why in the world would you do something like that? I want to say this. We wonder why the country's going like it's going. We wonder why, just in my 80 years, I have seen evil in our leadership like I never thought existed. Well, I knew a lot of it went on. I've been studying it since 1979. And I knew a lot of things that were going on up there that really they weren't making a big deal about. They were keeping it covered up. And we had a man in the seat of the presidency here for a while that opened the doors and showed us everything that was going on. And now we know about it. I believe 
that if God turns his face away from this country and allows it to go down the pits, it'll be because of this issue right here more than any of the rest. We have taken the power away from God in something that he chose to make a very important part of his ministry, creating human beings. Now, can't leave you like that. I've made this comment and I want to make it to you. There is no people in the whole world that ought to have anything near like the understanding of the power of forgiveness like born-again believers. And you ought to know that. You ought to understand that. 14th chapter of Romans, you ought to know not to judge other people and not to put them down because of what they're doing and all. Because the power of forgiveness can take their natural sin away from them, their everyday sin away from them, and God remembers it no more. Well, you know what he did, or you know what she did years ago, and God says, "I'm, I'm sorry, I don't believe I remember that. You see, we don't have the power to do that. But God does. And he says, I promise you, I forget it. I forget it. So please, the glorious thing for us and for everybody else that has anything to do with any of this is the knowledge that God forgives us. And all you have to do is say, Lord, forgive me. It's just that easy. And he does. And not only that, but he forgets our sin. All our sin. All our sin. No matter how ugly you might consider it to be. Or how not noteworthy it may be telling some little lie or something it's all sin that people is the beauty of having our relationship with God's son and our savior Jesus Christ please do not ever forget that and admonish anybody who is dealing with any kind of guilt or whatever, ask God to forgive you. He'll do it immediately. And not only that, you may not be able to forget about it, but he will. And he does. And he says he does. Let's pray. Father, teach us. Teach us, Lord, how involved you are in each one of us' life that every single day you say in your word that everything was messed up and you looked down and you saw your people that you had created and you couldn't figure out why wasn't anybody asking you, Lord, what do we do? 
We have a tendency, Lord, to be that way. We try to run our own business. And in the same book, Jeremiah, you remind us that it is not within the heart of man that walketh to direct his own steps. Lord, we can't do the right thing. We don't know how. So make us people who constantly ask you, Lord, how do I do this? What do you want me to do? What kind of decision do I need to make today? And Lord, if you tell me what to do, I'll do it. Thank you for being my God and for all that goes along with that. One other thing, folks. And I'm asking God to remind us of this. That brother of Jesus, James, said, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Please understand that the moment you said, I believe, Lord, you became a righteous person. There's no question now whether you are or not. But I'm asking God to remind us in this prayer for us to pray for this country, to pray for sinners, to pray for each other, to love you, Lord, with all our heart, mind, and soul, and love our neighbor even as ourself. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.